You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. I'm Pratik Bando and with me today I have Professor Joseph Ibrahim. Hi Pratik. Marie Crosland, who is the CEO of Napier Street Aged Care in South Melbourne, Victoria. Hi Pratik. Sally Eastwood, who is an occupational therapist who has more than 10 years experience both in acute hospital settings and care homes. Hi Pratik. And finally, we have Jeremy Lee, our resident community advocate. Hi Pratik. In the last podcast, we talked about the devastating impact COVID-19 is having, drawing particular reference to stories we're hearing from Europe. We talked about the unique situation and the unique vulnerability of aged care residents to this virus. And although we didn't take the decision lightly, on the balance, we advocated for hard lockdown, meaning to limit virtually all except essential visit or those on compassionate grounds to care homes across Australia. We've talked about the benefits of doing this in that keeping the virus out is arguably the most important measure we can take to save many lives. But we also acknowledge that such a lockdown comes at a significant cost. In particular, it could worsen some of the failures of the system currently being investigated by the Royal Commission, which could cause further damage to the lives of residents. I wanna talk first about what we think some of these compromises might be. And I'm gonna put this first to Prof. Prof, what do you think will be some of the compromises that come with a hard lockdown? Well, the Royal Commission was very clear about the level of neglect and potential abuse that's occurring in the system when it wasn't under the level of pressure it is now. So supporting residents to eat and drink, maintaining their hydration, managing people who develop delirium or behaviours of concern, the level of assaults between residents, staff assaulting residents. They were talked about poor continence management and leaving residents sitting or lying in urine or faeces. And the thing that worries me probably the most amongst that, it would be that people are likely to resort to physical and chemical restraint using the guise of COVID as the reason for having to do that to be able to get through their work. The final point that the Royal Commission brought up was the existing palliative care for residents who are dying was already fragmented and patchy, causing distress to the dying person and their family. These situations will only get worse with the pandemic. Obviously, it's important to point out that these findings were not across the board and that some care homes were performing very, very well with the Royal Commission's investigations. I'll put this to you, um, Marie, as well. What do you think would be some of the compromises that come with a hard lockdown? I think the compromises would be that families would be quite distraught about not being able to see their relatives for a long time. I think initially people are thinking that this whole thing will go along for a few weeks and then it will magically go away and everything will go back to normal. But it's rapidly becoming clear that this will be for a very long time and we have a a long way to go before we reach a peak and then start to come down. So people will start to become more concerned that they haven't seen people, that they haven't been able to touch them, to give them a hug, 
possibly to say goodbye if they do pass away suddenly and don't get that opportunity to come in in those palliative care stages. So Marie, obviously your facility is performing very well. Some facilities out there are very stretched, understaffed and not performing as well. How do you think this lockdown could compromise the care of residents in those kind of facilities? I think it it could compromise the care, but probably that will really depend on their ability to retain their staff during this process. And I think that you know, maybe they're the facilities, if staffing is becoming an issue, that they will need more support externally in whatever way that would look like. Sally, do you have any thoughts on how care homes will be compromised by complete lockdowns? I think something else that would have impact on quite a few residents and their families would be those residents that have a diagnosis of dementia and would be quite used to routines of families coming in to visit on regular occasions. They, there would be people that would see their loved one every day. And so relying and waiting on on those family members visiting and becoming anxious and distressed when they're not seeing, seeing those family members, they may not necessarily be able to articulate that but could become anxious in their behaviours and and require more support from staff um, during those times when they're generally engaged by their family and friends. And and Jeremy, as a member of the community, say with a family member in aged care, what, what would your concerns be about being locked out from accessing your loved one? Well, my main concern would be trust. Can I really trust the staff at the aged care home 100% because I won't be able to to see my family member in the home. That would be my main concern. And what are the kind of measures and what are the type of communications that I can participate in? So I think you're both making points around the theme of trust in aged care. And I think we discussed this earlier that that trust probably happens in two levels. First is trust in the system at large. And second, and Ian Yates talked about this in his uh, interview with us earlier, probably the most important trust is between the individual facility and the residents and their family. So I want to throw this out to you guys separately, these two ideas of trust. What can be done to improve the trust in the system at the moment? Things from government messaging right through to extra measures that can be taken that that show people that they can trust the system at the moment. To me, at a system level, there is no trust. The Royal Commission has shattered whatever trust there might have been at a system level. The Oakton scandal in South Australia, the multiple inquiries that show that there's been failings in successive governments and failings in regulation mean that it's not possible to trust. The aged care sector has not released information on performance for decades. We're starting from a base that is very, very low. And what we have to think through is how do we establish trust quickly on a large scale? And my view is the best way to do that is to be open and honest now and to recognise what's gone before is not how we're going to proceed into the future. Arguments against that will be this will be uh, cause panic and unsettle and create a loss of confidence in the system. To that, I'd respond by saying that already exists. I don't think we could be any worse by being honest about what's happening and how we're using information. So in terms of some of that trust in the system, one of the things that we saw in Spain, or we're hearing from Spain at least at this stage, is that the system failed under pressure and didn't just fail in a small way, potentially failed in a catastrophic way. 
in some areas. What kind of measures can be taken in Australia to ensure that the system doesn't fail in the same way? So if we we go back to this question about how do we get field intelligence from people that community trust so that they're not trying to find workarounds and are willing to adhere to the instructions, what we need are external third parties. And that would mean that people that aren't employed by the facility would be present and able to act as advocates and be able to provide the community with a level of confidence that they are there, be it if you want to call them as inspectors or police or advocates. In the last 20 years with my work, both clinically and medico-legally, I see that patients and families that have been harmed are more comforted when an investigation is done by someone who is objective and not directly connected. And if we want to restore confidence in the system and at at a national level, then I think it's possible to put six to 10,000 people into care homes to play that role. I guess Prof's preempted the next question, which is about trust at the facility level um, and, and what can actually be done by operators to make it clear to residents that they can be trusted. Uh, What are some sort of practical measures you think that could be done to help communicate that trust? To develop that trust, I think Napier Street's done a number of actions. So we've communicated very frequently with the residents and with the relatives, but we've also probably done a lot more Skype, sending photos, receiving photos and then taking photos of the resident with those photos. So people are are knowing that that we've actually followed through. We haven't just sent back an email and said, thanks for the photos, that we've actually showed them to the person and that the person's enjoying them. A lot initiated and assisted with making a lot more phone calls and those type of things. And I think they all help to build that trust. I think people hearing their mum or dad's voices or seeing them through Skype or FaceTime or anything is yeah, quite comforting for them. And would it help you to have more staff to help do that at the current times? Or? No, 100% it would. It's actually quite time-consuming to sit with someone to have a conversation with Skype because you have to set it all up and the staff member essentially has to pretty much stay there in case the wrong button's pushed or something's done wrong. So they can sort of hover in the background. So it's a pretty one-on-one activity. And Marie, um, I was just wondering, I saw in the news that uh, because there's going to be a high high level of unemployment in Australia, people are calling out to hospitals. And I was wondering the same thing going to aged care homes. What do you think about getting other people in there that don't normally work in aged care homes to kind of handle things like what you're saying just before? I think that would be fine so long as it it goes through. We can't just have volunteers coming in willy-nilly because then we might as well have relatives coming in. Like We need that screening and really try and keep that protection. The idea is that we're trying to reduce in some ways the amount of people within that environment. So it's a bit hard with how we do it. So I don't want to answer this. I just wanted one question to Sally, which would be, given that she is in and out of homes, how does she establish trust? Because her relationship would be different to to that that Marie and her staff establish. 
I think the important points of establishing trust for myself and other uh, therapists that don't work within the homes on a regular basis is trying to always be on the front foot. So trying to really build rapport quickly by making sure we're very clear with our communication, not only to the resident themselves, but also to the family members. So Often, unfortunately, we are unable to see residents quickly after receiving the referral, depending on what our staffing is like. So it may be some time from when Marie's staff may have referred to us as to then when we would see them. So by calling the family members and saying that we're going into the facility to see their loved one and providing them with the opportunity to be there at that assessment often helps with people building that trust to know that we would like them to be there, we would like them to see what we're doing and then that helps with that communication of if we are going to have ongoing therapy or ongoing input what that might look like, particularly if there are things that the family members can do themselves. So if there's exercises or if there's items that need to be purchased to assist with the with the input of our staff, it helps if we can and have that open relationship with the family and also having that open communication with the staff because it's important for Marie and her staff to know what we're doing, why we're there, when we're coming back and making sure that we follow through with that. So if we're going to if we say we're going to be somewhere that we are there and then if we can't that we obviously call and and let them know that there's been a change of plans. So moving now to some of the practical and innovative measures that we can take inside of homes to actually make the lockdown more humane for residents. But what are some of the things we can do to, to handle requests for exceptions? I think that we can handle those uh, very much on an individual basis. So uh, palliative care is certainly end of life last few days, certainly needs to be accommodated wherever possible. And I think we spoke last time about how that would happen because it needs to be so it's not at a risk for the other residents in the facility. And other requests can be accommodated by things like people being able to see each other through doors and people being in the garden and you know, people being able to, to look and talk through gates and things like that. For some people, that's enough to make them happy to see someone, even if they are six feet away. So, yeah, we've done a fair bit of that, and that's been quite positive. Prof, do you think there's any benefit in sort of other facilities to have layout an exemption kind of process and, and, and communicate that to people? My medical training supports the idea of having clear criteria and decision pathways to guide the majority of what we do. What I find though sometimes is when you blindly follow guidelines, you do more harm than good. This is a situation that requires people to do to follow the guidelines, I think probably 90% of the time, and then to uh, exhibit good judgment on the other 10%. And I don't have a sense of how possible that is because executing good judgment requires people with training, confidence, a willingness to get other opinions and a willingness to admit when you're wrong. So I'm more talking about communicating how to apply for an exemption rather than the actual decision about the exemption. Uh, on a larger facility, is that something that should be communicated to people? I think that there would be a danger in, in saying that everyone could make requests because I think then everyone would and I, I don't know how we would actually be able to manage it. Hmm. I would assume, Maureen, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but 
if someone was obviously in a situation where you felt an exemption would would be appropriate for that resident and their family, I would think you would reach out to that family and suggest that maybe it is time that they come in and see their loved one if they wanted to see them before so that they did pass away or if, you know, something extraordinary had occurred. Like, so as the, as the facility, you would reach out to them to maybe suggest that they come in. Yes, yes, that, that is exactly what would happen. But that would be around if we thought someone, even an incident had happened and we felt that that person would benefit by seeing their family or we felt that potentially they were coming towards end of life, yeah, we would certainly reach out to the family for all of those. But I was meaning generally where a family may, if we were putting out more broadly, that there may be exemptions other than than for those end of life or major incidents, that people may take that as a special consideration can be made for me to visit next Sunday and and what that would mean workload-wise and, and how we would manage that. Because I guess if I'm a family member and contacting a home, it would be really good for me to have somebody who might be the, the resident communication officer. And, and, and this person is keeping track of all the different levels of activity people have and, and what's being offered to who when. Just coordinating that would be a very useful person for me to be able to contact. Absolutely. If that was if that was a possibility, I think for one, it would help um, the staff on the ground in relation to not taking up the time of of the nurses and care providers because they are running off their feet, and it would give a constant for the family to be able to be in contact with and residents that you know would know that that's their go to person if they're they're having difficulty managing their own technology that to go and speak to them as well, which would also help streamline systems within the facilities. Marie, do you have any comments on that? Or I think it actually sounds sounds fantastic. I, I really like the idea of a communications officer. I think that would be really good to have that, that go-to point and that person that actually coordinates it all. It's a little bit ad hoc at the moment happening. So, yeah, I think that would be great. We've talked about ways for residents to communicate with families. In terms of also entertainment, um, dealing with boredom in facilities for some residents who now can't just go outside very easily, is there a role for technology there that, that you guys have thought about? I think the difficulty with this sometimes is in relation to what access facilities have to, to technology. So every facility is quite different even within the facilities that I've worked with who have come under the one umbrella, each home has had access to different things. So I think there's space for looking at having movies playing. There might be the ability to have audio readings of books or whether there's looking at having the the newspaper read out um, online or on a radio station, which would then mean that people would be able to be engaged in larger numbers while still obviously maintaining social distancing and appropriateness, but um, having access to being engaged on for more periods of the day. Um, but we, we talked a bit about a communications officer, I guess an activities officer. Uh, who, who, do, who do people go to right now to get options for activities, uh, Marie, in, inside of your home? So we have activity staff, or, or we call them lifestyle staff, and music therapists. So, so they predominantly do all the activities, but communication, so they're helping 
residents do the Skype and everything. But I think that communications officer idea is the next level up from that. It's really making it much more coordinated than the current ad hoc system. So I'm just going to butt in and so, so we know based on the unemployment that there's a talent pool out there in terms of actors and comedians uh, with the closure of, of those live venues that there are people there who can provide that type of entertainment. It's really just a matter of harnessing it. I also think in terms of residents inside the home, are they are they still allowed to intermingle? I'll put that one to Marie. What, what's the situation at the moment uh, with people meeting in, in communal areas? They currently are allowed to intermingle with some social distancing, which is difficult. <laughs> I think the staff try social distancing and the residents undo the social distancing but um but we do try so we're trying to spread activities across instead of having them in a main area trying to set up two groups at once and and those type of things but yeah the the social distancing is is quite difficult for people that are cognitively impaired to understand and i guess they have um hearing issues as well and vision issues uh, yes, yes, they do, um, but they're easier to overcome than than explaining why someone's socially distancing, so, yeah. Okay. So um, just moving, I guess, now to we talked about some vir- virtual things. We touched earlier on some physical things like using barriers, a fence or a window. Any other insight there from either Sally or Marie about what could be some ideas to still keep people isolated but also to give them some interaction via physical means? The only things that I have seen, which we've probably already really spoken about, is family members, say, sitting outside the window of the resident's room. So whilst they're on the phone having the conversation, they can see those facial expressions and interaction. So they're still able to, I suppose, visually see their loved one. And it goes both ways, obviously, for the resident to also see their child or grandchild and then have that phone conversation, which makes that process a little bit easier. Anything else to add there, Marie, or...? I think that that obviously we're able to do that in our facility, but for many facilities that would be quite difficult to organise. And again, it, it would probably stretch the staff beyond their current levels of capability. Yeah, because another idea I'm getting here is if you had that communications officer and one of their roles was to look at potential options for these kind of things and to initiate those things, and with the correct amount of staffing, that's potentially something people could be looking at specifically for each home? I think very definitely. And if if that was funded, that that would be amazing. So, Prof, just to finish things off, this is going to be a stressful time for staff where they're going to be separating residents from family members and they're also going to be dealing with increased workload in uncertain times. Uh, Do you have a message for staff out there? I think the key message is that we need to look after each other to understand that we are in a pandemic that requires extraordinary measures and to be kind to each other in these situations and be forgiving that we might get short-tempered at times, we might make a mistake. This is the time to forgive, re-look at things, get your breath and go again because we'll only get through this if we fight on and have the strength to continue. Giving up is not an option. 
Okay, with that, I think we'll conclude the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining this time. We'll be back next time with some thoughts about infection control. I think in the meantime, we seem to have come to a conclusion that we might be advocating for a role, which is a communication officer or a communication coordinator. And I think we can put together some resources about what we think that person might do and maybe put a request forward to advocate for getting some funding for homes for that position. Is that something we all agree on? Yeah, I think that would be great. Yes, that that makes really good sense. Okay, well, thank you very much for attending the podcast. We'll see you again next time.